Namaste. So before we speak about uh, the integral yoga and the different processes, first thing first is why should we undertake the yoga at all? So yoga implies union and uh, as a corollary we can say that we are all leading half lives, means adhya dura jivan <laughs> and it's never a fulfilling, never a happy, never a fully uh, you know, uh, never a perfect life. So the reason is that we live only on the surfaces of our life and we live only in the lower, lesser hemisphere of our existence. So our larger existence, our deeper truths remain unclaimed. And this is the jigsaw puzzle of life given to us to reclaim them and reclaiming them change this life here. This is the basic premise. Of course, there are people who have found that there is a deeper existence, there is a larger existence, but very often they've used this to withdraw from life because the contrast is such. The life that we lead here, full of its pleasures and pain, joys and sorrows, uh, you know, where the old doctrine is that buy one joy, get two sorrows free of cost. So this is something which at some point, we don't like this play. This is the old play of nature going on. And one doesn't want this play a a point comes when the whole thing appears in absurdity and that's the time when human beings begin to seek something greater, higher. doesn't matter what they call it, yoga, spirituality, seeking, thirst, quest, all this is, the word is not important, but they begin to seek whether there is something beyond the human frame. And that's how people have discovered that yes, there is a greater reality beyond, which is uh, inalienable bliss, unconditional peace, which is truth without error, which is perfect perfection, which is love which never fades away and so on and so forth. But when they enter this reality, they realize the stark contrast between life as it is and life that one discovers there. And uh, they don't know how to reconcile it. The bridge is missing. So the tendency is to withdraw. After all, you know, when you discover such a great reality, like just now we had the bhajan, shivoham, shivoham. The bhajan is typical of, you know, the traditional yoga where on one side we have the mano, buddha, ankar and the five senses, the five elements. But all this is apun, imperfect. So one withdraws into that which is shivam, the most auspicious, the good, the true, the eternal, the beautiful. Now, there is a tendency in human mind uh, which is much greater than this is that we want to make this life perfect. So for these people, for many of us who want this life to be made perfect for whatever reason, this withdrawal from life as it is into a greater beyond, it doesn't go well with the... It's still a kind of imperfection. After all, we are entering into one zone but leaving this zone completely as it is like landing on moon and Mars and colonizing it but the earth remains what it is. And people on earth, who are they? They are also our extension. So that's where Mother and Shirobindo bring in the whole you know, truth about integral yoga that no, there is a way that this life can be transformed by the touch of that greater beyond. And the bridge that they you know, brought out or that they revealed to us between that greater beyond and life here is the mother. So integral yoga essentially, if one has to say in one word, it revolves and centers around the Divine Mother. And who is the Divine Mother? Well, the Divine Mother is the one who is the creatrix consciousness. She is the one who has gone forth into creation. So it stands to logic that who else but she can know all about creation, its mechanisms, processes and how it can be changed. 
But how do we come into contact with the Divine Mother? She is too vast. She is everywhere in everything. So that's where we speak about the Mother as the physical embodiment, which is the manifestation, the, the, as in India it is called the Avatar, the conscious descent of the Divine Mother in a physical form so that it becomes a gateway for us to approach and you know she becomes the bridge for the integral yoga to um, change into a reality from the theory to a reality. So the practice of the yoga is essentially centered around opening to the Divine Mother. Now, Shurabindo wrote a lot about this yoga in different places and it's very easy to get lost in the vast body of literature. But basically we can divide this literature into two main forms. One is which was written before the Mother's final coming. And that you know, comprises books like The Synthesis of Yoga, The Life Divine and most of the works, major works as they are called. And there the yoga is more impersonal. There is a lot of things which we have to do and we have to open to the divine Shakti. That's how the yoga goes. And after 1920, when the mother has come, though till 1921 the Arya went on, uh, but most of it was completed. Then the first major book that comes out, which is, uh, you know, gives us the key to Shirobindo's Yoga, it is called as the Bij Mantra, is The Mother. Now, The Mother is a book which primarily is a set of six, um, uh, you know, different passages. The first, we may use the word letter, it's not all the six are not letters. So this book was written in 1927, just after Shurabindo's physical withdrawal from, you know, after the Siddhi day. And he had placed the mother in the forefront saying she is the one through whom this yoga will be taken forward. So the first letter of this book, this is a small book, you know, it's also available in a big volume. So the first letter, first uh, chapter of the mother is basically a message that was given to the disciples. Then the next four letters, that means chapter 2nd, 3rd, 4th and 5th, were letters written to different sadhaks on you know specific queries. And the last chapter, chapter 6, was written independently. Again, on query of someone. But in itself, this book, is the compendium if one wants to know how is Shurabindo's integral yoga to be practiced? One book, then this is the book. So uh, we'll just quickly go through this book and come back to aspiration, rejection, surrender. In the first chapter, Shurabindo lays down the very fundamental principle of this yoga and he says there are two powers. Yoga means something here and something there, and the two have to unite. So yoga is union. So now this union, like any bridge, there has to be uh, one, one um, you know, foundation stone holding it here and the other on the other side. So on this side, from our side, it's the call. So call is the call for the yoga. It's not a process, a technique. It's not a method. It's the need, the thirst for something greater, for something uh, beyond for, for a greater perfection that is not yet manifested or simply out of love and faith a call from this hemisphere and on the other hand from the other side it's the grace that answers so the entire yoga is a journey between the call and the grace it starts with the call the grace is unseen it works from behind but we do not know but over a period of time with, as the call persists we become aware of a grace which is supporting us unseen hand which leads us saves us even from ourselves as you know the mother puts it and then as we go more and more we discover that it's the grace that is actually doing the yoga and slowly all this effort uh, 
we discover was an act of grace all the strength for the yoga the aspiration everything was kindled by the grace and we go on from this side on to the other where there is all is a grace including the effort so the whole yoga goes between the two and as we proceed there are many aspects you know when we use the word grace um, we have to learn to surrender to the grace it's like we want uh, some you know uh, water and but and it's raining grace like rain it's pouring and pouring but i have turned the vessel upside down and i end up saying that not a drop has entered into my container or it's like the sunlight comes and i pull all the curtains hide behind and i say where is the sun where is the sun the sun has come but we are not ready so something similar with regard to grace that there must be a response we must open to the grace open to the influence and this opening to the grace implies that we refuse certain things which are going to fill the same container after all we are a limited container so we can either open to the grace above or we can open to all the other forces in the universe it's not strictly either or it starts like that when there is a mixture but slowly by continuing to offer ourselves to the grace opening to the grace invoking the grace the whole process begins and a time comes when our patram the container is free it's empty and it is filled by the grace which transforms the container itself into a beautiful vessel and instrument of the divine so what is this container the container is the mind life body it's called as the aadhar so this is the base now what is inside the container is the soul so the soul is like a flame and the container is like the deepam so it is mind life and body and within which a flame is lit that's how human beings uh, we all are and uh, so you know he spoke about the child of the mother this flame knows itself in all of us that it is child of the mother because it's, it's the mother's creation wherever in whatever to whatever religious beliefs or non beliefs we subscribe to we end up that there is an origin there is a power which has gone into creation so we we may have our views and differences about the power but there is this power and it's this power that given birth to all this creation including us so there is this flame of aspiration within us but in most of us it's so small it's like a little little seed or a teeny weeny little you know spark and there is so much darkness that this spark is feels intimidated by the darkness so what is to be done not to be frightened by the darkness but increase the light that's what common sense the logic is you know often even in times like these people say oh there is so much darkness there is so much don't look at the virus look at the grace increase the light that's the only way to get rid of darkness fear of darkness never helped anyone one may be afraid all one's life the darkness will become more and more frightening light up the flame and you see the darkness will disappear of course the flame to begin with is very small and so it doesn't uh, uh, you know scatter all the darkness of everybody around but at least it is enough to take care of this little patram this little vessel our little mind life and body and the area which is immediately around so when we light up this flame we become a beacon light for everything that is around everybody around so this lighting of the flame is aspiration and how to light up the flame many ways one is the simplest how do you light a candle 
either strike a matchstick and put it there. So striking the matchstick, matchstick is described beautifully in the Rig Veda that you take a stone below and a stone above and rub them. So people think it's about the stone age. <laughs> no, the, the method is still the same even when you light a matchstick. So what is the method? When there is a friction between something which is inflammable and something which has the capacity of you know putting fire and it is dry then the flame will be lit up. So we are the vicar or the little wick where the flame is very small. We have to take it to the source where there is a huge fire and it will be lit up. So what is the source to light up the fire? Directly it is the Divine Mother. If we can open to her, the flame will be lit. If not, then the works of Mother and Shurabindo. If not, we can't, we find it very difficult. Then these kind of collective satsangs and they are not either or, all of them go together. These kind of collective satsangs, they are not just webinars, but they are yagnas. If you take our uh, uh, Indian thought, we are all right now engaged in a yagna. In this yagna, we are invoking that fire. And because all of us are united. See, after the webinar and before, we are all having our own independent lives. But when we are together with the idea that we want to speak or share or, uh, you know, understand integral yoga, then we are all centered somewhere around this thirst. And because of this, the flame... Uh, you know, within each one combines with every other flame and we all become one single ball of fire. You know, it is said in ancient traditions and the mother says, if 12 people come together and invoke the divine, the divine presence manifests. So, I think we are more than 12, right? So, <laughs> so, so this is the way to light up the flame. And once the flame is lit, then we have to allow it to grow. It's not enough that the flame is lit. Tend the fire. When the flame is small, it can be blown away by breeze. What are these breeze? These are strong winds. They are gusts of passion, intense excitement, anger, fear. So all this can suddenly, you know, throw a heap of dust on the flame. It will never vanish completely because the flame in the center of the heart. But it will suffer. It will keep smoldering below the ashes. So we must take every care to tend this flame, to guard it. First to guard it. Now, you know, this flame has to be guarded against all these forces which try to finish it. So one simple way is that don't talk about this flame. Yoga is to be done in the quietude of the heart. See, it's a paradox. This is not a yoga where one keeps, you know, drawing more and more disciples and telling them all about it. This is a very beautiful, quiet process going on inside. But light up the flame. Keep going to the source again and again. Remembering the mother is to make this flame many, many fold brighter. Offering all we do into this flame will make this flame grow brighter and clearer. And this has to be lit now in the Aadhar. It's not enough that it is uh, you know, lit up inside the uh, heart cave in the soul. But the mind must be lit up by the flame. What is meant by the mind being lit up by the flame? Normally the mind has this movement that you know it tries to enter into 100 territories to know from here, scraps of information, television, internet, WhatsApp, university and everything else. Let the mind be focused only on one thing, the divine knowledge. You know why divine knowledge? Very in, in you know, very often people say, why divine knowledge? We need worldly knowledge. This is the one of the biggest illusions because of which even today we are suffering. In ancient Indian thought, the divine knowledge is described as that, knowing which all else can be known. So 
knowing that all else can be known that is how brahman is described in our scriptures you know that knowing that so even about the virus even about the ways of healing in every field when we go back to the indian tradition uh, we we had such a wonderful way that whether it be dance art education science music aircraft medicine everything everyday life whether it be marriage whether it be childbirth everything was a sacred dosi it was connected with the divine source so we have to look at life from a top down view so there is something called as a divine science a divine medicine understanding of everything so when we acquire this is the kind of divine knowledge to which the mind must aspire not this temporary knowledge which keeps changing that today it is ramsadivit tomorrow it is something else yesterday it is where the mass today it is black fungus you know within a year we can see anybody with a little common sense can see that basically we don't know and you know more and more our ignorance is getting exposed well i can say that i am a doctor and I, you know i keep telling that you know the the one thing that i discovered going through this medicine process is that we really don't know but we feign knowledge which is much worse but there is a way of knowing things and that is the top down view and within outward view so we must strive for the mind should be lit up with that uh, fire that i want to know what is truth what is this world what is creation who am i and not just in an abstract way but in every detail of the world that's what originally vigyan means gyan vigyan yoga avata gita the one uh, um, wisdoms extending into everything is vigyan not the way we understand today similarly our heart the vital what is that perfect love i must seek it and once i seek it then i can manifest it very often people say a love without expectation unconditional love yes of course that is the ultimate but how do we find it when i don't have it within myself how can i give it to another and if i have not even found it how do i expect it even from other so i have to first find that the aspiration is right but we have to find it so the source of this unconditional love sweetness is the divine love so the heart must be set a flame Uh, you know seeking the divine love seeking the divine ananda seeking the divine beatitude similarly with the life energy instead of all the various motives it should gather into a flame and one should say well the whole purpose of all my life all its manifold activities nothing has to be left that work has not to be left we don't have to become monks in a monastery or join an ashram or any such thing whatever work we are doing we have to shift the motive so instead of the motive being you know satisfaction of the ego or is selfish service the motive must become serving the divine and seeking the divine and finding the divine through the work perfecting the instrument so that we can serve the divine better and better and if we proceed like that we'll find that initially we used to we believe that we are the doers and our task you know we have to only inform god but then we discover we are not the doers we are only the instrument and it is the divine who is the worker then we discover that the instrument is not perfect it's very imperfect so even when the divine force enters into it the instrument doesn't respond well it gets tired it gets fatigued it is prone to various influences so then we keep offering the instrument and then a stage comes when we discover that all is sky and god all expressions all actions the very re- respiration breathing heartbeat everything becomes a movement of the one divine consciousness so this is where the yoga has to lead us through all these steps in the way now this is about the aspiration in the vital then even the physical body why leave it behind so in tradition the body has been left behind that well uh, body is just a stone inert instrument it's like the 
spot in which uh, the development will take place. This is the Vedantic, traditional Vedantic idea of evolution that a time comes when it is fully developed, then break the pot and go away. You know that famous song of uh, Kabir Daji, you know, Matki Futi and the water has gone. So, but that's not how we should look at it. After all, the physical matter, body which has supported our journey, journey of humanity, that's the base. And unless the body changes, nothing permanent can happen. Because this is the base in which the divine life has to manifest. So even in the body, the flame of aspiration should be lit. That this body itself should become an instrument which is flawless. The nerve should completely be so beautiful, open that all the current should flow through the nerve. So you see, in this yoga, we don't do pranayama. But we allow the divine force to flow through each nerve and cell and tissue and organ and the heart so that it's the divine consciousness that takes charge of the breath and speech and act. So this is the process that in every part the flame has to be laid. Now what happens when you want to light up a flame? You have to first prepare the ground. So preparing the ground means you can't just go go and you know pick up a spot and light up a flame. There would be creatures there, there would be uh, beings, forces uh, who have made it place. It may be dirty, so that has to be cleansed. This process of preparing the ground so that when the flame is lit and the gifts are received, it goes to the right. The whole place is ready for that. It becomes a sacred space. So we have to make our whole being into a temple of the Lord. It must become a sacred space. So how do we make a sacred space? We all know it. There are things we are not supposed to do inside the temple. Because we are going to face the deity. Now imagine, you know, somebody says, I'll become a drunkard and go inside. Or you face the deity and start doing discussions that, you know, I don't believe in God. All right, don't believe. Stay outside. Nobody is compelling you to come and, you know, be part of the queue and start arguing with the pandit. So, because you'll receive nothing and you'll prevent, you know, all other people from entering here. So, there are things within us which come in the way of the divine grace and its workings. And if we can, you know, keep it away slowly, get rid of it, then it'll be wonderful. So, we have a whole list. We see in the mother of rejection. What is to be rejected? Again, at each level. At the level of the mind, what is the way? What is the problem with the mind? It is stuck with systems, theories, philosophies, what God can do and cannot do, he should do and he would not do. Who are we? He is infinite. He acts in total freedom. Once we understand this, we don't shut God in a box of our own ideas. Shutting God in a box of our ideas leads to religion, the, the kind of religion which leads to fanaticism and we know where it leads to. Then become my God versus your God. And if you don't have the same belief like mine, you are a you know heretic. No, that's not the way. God is infinite. That's why he is divine. He acts in utter freedom. That's why he is divine. He doesn't act according to my notions. If he would, then there would be no difference between me and God. The fact that he's a much vaster consciousness means, implies that I don't know his ways of working. So what we can do? Instead of saying he should act according to my wishes, we should say, I don't know, I don't understand your ways. Teach me. And he will be very happy to teach. How does he teach? He has a very beautiful way. He doesn't make you sit in the class and start saying, okay, first give me this money and roll in my classroom, present sir. No. He just says, teach me and he pours this entire wisdom into us. Our mind begins to become, you know that beautiful poem of Sri the Golden Light? Thy golden light came down into my brain. The grey rooms of my mind sun-touched became. A bright reply to wisdom's occult 
explain a calm illumination and a flame. So the mind has to become calm and quiet and open and then the divine truth will begin to mold it. But first we must reject this constant noise that is taking place. So how to reject this constant noise? By knowing that we really don't know. By knowing that the divine knows all and by seeking the knowledge. Not staying there with a the belief system. Again, we can turn it into a belief system that, you know, Shobhinda has said so, mother has said so and then turn it into a rigid dogma. Say to the mother, mother, I don't understand what you have written. And she will explain, not verbally, but she will awaken ourselves to that understanding. Mother says, just read Shurbindo. Don't uh, have to even try to understand, but it will create new brain cells for the understanding. But we have to reject all these knowledge that, you know, Shurbindo says so, he said so, that person said so, the following scientist said something else, so a Harvard University professor said something else, yesterday in WhatsApp something else. No. The way of yoga is one-pointedness. One-pointedness towards the divine truth and he will reveal so that's how all who have gone the way have done it. So rejection of the mind with its, you know, all the ideas, opinions, viewpoints in which we remain stuck. Systems, beliefs, rejection of the heart's demands. Divine grace must do things this way. And if it doesn't do, he is not divine. Now look at the catch, poor fellow. <laughs> we don't even give him space to act. He must act according to my desires and wishes. Well, he may... Because he is free to do what he wants. But so much better to say that, you know, surrender the heart, its feelings, emotions, everything to the divine. And say that you act, you fill my heart with all that you want. Now, the demands and desires often interfere. So that's why Shubhindu says, if you want the divine force to act within you, get rid of these, you know, lust, anger, greed, fears. Why? Because they are like many, many like serpents and forces. They want to usurp. They create a confusion. When even sunlight can be blocked by clouds and it can be blocked by a blinding storm. So the more quieter we become in the vital the more we cast away all these things which make us very excited, uh, you know, animated and, you know, make us feel arrogant about ourselves. See, ignorance is not a problem. We are all ignorant. But arrogance of ignorance is, the, is, is really a problem because then we are not open to knowledge, not open to truth. So we have to reject from the life all these things, especially the desired self, because we can... Either have my satisfaction or we can have, you know, very beautifully, Kabir has put it, Prem gali ati saakari tame dona samahi, jab mein tha tab hari nahi, jab hari tab mein nahi. We can either choose the ego self and its satisfactions or we can choose the divine self. Now, it's not that the divine will not satisfy or fulfill the ego. If that is a relation we want to have, he will do that. That's how countless devotees, they only pray to God only for granting various wishes. And God grants them. But imagine, there is this God granting us all the wishes. Imagine one day telling, who is this who is granting me all the wishes? How about having him with us? The moment we have this aspiration that I want you and not what you can give me. That's where yoga begins. That's the difference between religion and spirituality. Religion is turning to God for what he can give us. Yoga is turning to God for God himself. So that's how we have to, you know, reject all these uh, aspects because so that we can seek him for himself. Same with the physical nature. What is the physical nature? It's like matter. What is matter? It is dull, obscure. It refuses to move. You know the story of August crossing Vindhyachal, asking it to bow down. 
that is the first story which indicate that there was a sage in ancient india who tried to bend matter it's so obstinate and crosses over the obstinacy of matter so this is where matter and everything entrenched in the material consciousness is obstinate it refuses to change tamas inertia doubts you see what happens we decide that today onwards i am going to sit in meditation or even read a book and what happens we go home and we say what's the movie coming on netflix right or today no we'll do it tomorrow because today somebody else will come so that life goes on like that why because matter binds us to fixed patterns and habits at one stage we realize that even aging death disease they are nothing but habits that's how the cells respond and if we know how to retune the cells reprogram them that you don't have to get frightened you don't have to overreact but learn that you know there is a greater security there is a force there is a power which is within you invoke that you don't have to react like in tumors they multiply like anything all diseases can be healed it's just the obstinate resistance of matter so how we can conquer any obstinacy is you know all parents know it when children keep on saying i want this i want this i want this parents say whatever you may cry baby but i am not going to grant you this <laughs> because it's not good for you so we have to tell all this you know you we must understand that it is the physical nature stupidity very often people say i doubt because i don't see god now this is the most absurd excuse ever i don't even see the virus but everybody believes in the virus and the omnipotence of the virus <laughs> so there are many things which escape the eye many things that escape the senses this idea that seeing is believing is one of the greatest absurdities that we have love is not seen but felt wisdom awakens within us it's not that you suddenly show in the movies that there is a light which burns no the the lamp burns inside us so <laughs> so peace is felt within even in the battlefield one can feel it some of the best things of life are not seen by the outer senses but felt by the intrinsic sense so if we remain entrenched in physical nature and choose to run by it then yoga will take much longer but if we take it that look when every time a doubt arises we tell our physical consciousness or whatever that part is look you don't know you can't know like this you have to wait and a greater knowledge will come then you will know it's a process like if anything like a child entering into kindergarten he starts saying tell me who made the rule that 2 plus 2 equals to 4 fundamentals of mathematics <laughs> you'll say you'll know it and more complex equations will come so this is how we have to understand that it's only when we arrive to the end that everything becomes clear the whole picture till then we will start seeing the pieces of the puzzle appearing before us but the greater picture will be there as we have reached a certain point certain stage in evolution so this is how we have to reject the physical nature's obstinacy stupidities and doubts so aspiration and rejection and the third thing is surrender so why surrender it's an anathema everything you know we are democratic and everybody is capable of everything everybody is same so god and bird and beast and stone and saint and the murderer they are all same well in a sense yes but in manifestation no we must understand that the snake the worm the bird the flower and man are same in essence but in manifestations they are different so if a monkey has to become man potentially he is that is proven by evolution but 
for the ape to become man he must learn the ways of man he must first you know uh, get close there was with very interesting you know i was today somebody sent a little video of a dog doing yoga yoga means asanas stretching the mat and doing the asanas and all that now the mother says at one point you know dogs and cats they are quite developed animals and also because they've been been human contact so they have evolved so they look upon us just like we look upon god and she says between the beings of the supramental world and human beings the difference is just the same like between dogs and cats in human beings and they make a super human or a super dog effort to understand us they want to become like us so what it means that a dog wants to become like us lives in the company of man and slowly the human beings teach and if you teach even a rat can be taught so it's not that we are uh, you know somebody is a gone case this is the only thing i learned by watching a you know a program or a sh- small little clip where a rat was turned into a pet and it was of course rats are known to conquer mazes and all this so everybody has a hope but surrender is important somebody has to teach us after all even a basic training even abc needed somebody to teach us true all knowledge is within but somebody has to ignite that somebody has to show us the way and in yoga the mother is not only Uh, she is not just uh, telling us the basis she says i am willing to carry you to take you through the journey why because it's a hazardous journey see the difference between a normal guru and when the mother takes up the yoga is this so a normal guru points the way that's how it is explained that guru points the way after that guru has no utility this is a kind of yoga which is you know a, a yoga of knowledge that the divine is within you go within that's it find out now these are the kind of yoga which rely on personal tapasya it is something like you know when i went to ladakh such beautiful place and mountains and somebody was to tell me that look here nowadays this system has come in india hire a car take a cab and go okay i have the road map with it but when you go through and you see the treacherous you know trenches and abysses and when you see the heights when you see what these expert drivers do when you cross the nathula pass you know high peaks with snows they tie the chains they make you stop this needs somebody who can be with us through the journey and the beauty is that the divine mother is ready willing more than willing to be with us with the journey she has not come to us as a guru she has come to us as mother she says i am not eager to be a guru of anyone to be a guru is to come down what does a guru does he teaches us a method and you do yourself we can also read a book and do it of course maybe one odd person will make it through the nathula pass and come back unscathed and it's not that it's a tabu but try doing it the chances are much more that <laughs> you'll crash on the way so there is something called as the guide of the way who is the guide who has ventured and found it and comes back you know the first man who climbed mount everest he took the risk the pains now he knows then he comes back takes few more few more few more then there are other guides who you know who now the passage is open everything is laid so that's how we have to understand that the divine mother is not just a guru but she carries us through the way she knows the way she knows the dangers difficulties how they have to be handled tackled and when we surrender to her the way becomes very easy simple smooth spontaneous as natural as taking a stroll but if we don't surrender i mean technically well each one is free but we must understand yoga is a very very specialized thing specialized in the sense we are entering into 
uncharted domains and territories and about which human beings have no idea one of the first experiences when we go within is not just peace you know peace by certain methods and practices is a different thing but when we see those snakes which are lying down when our inner beings guttered suddenly open up and there is an overflowing of sewers and people wonder what happened what happened well it's a cleansing process because that's where the garden has to come up so if we think that we can you know in ancient times yoga and yagya wherever they were done there used to be all these demons coming throwing all kinds of forces an ordinary person lives in the domain by ordinary i mean only in the sense that somebody is not taken up the yoga lives under the domain of like you know um, uh, ravana's rajya so it doesn't matter he looks after well he gives sone ki lanka everybody has a house of gold but the moment you take up yoga vibhishana ram 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 he kicks you out that's when these forces become aggressive and violent so one must understand that in ordinary life the the set of forces they are still there active but they don't become so aggressive but the moment we take up yoga they all become active and they know that here is a flame which has been lit which has the potential to escape from our territory and the potential to change us once we understand this then we understand that surrender of all at every level our mind our heart our life our body as we have just spoken about all of this and surrender means not tamasik that okay i have given myself to mother now i'll wait we do our effort but we surrender ourselves to her that whatever be the result it starts with that surrender of the fruits of our efforts next level is that we say that we surrender our will to you now what does it mean surrender of the will i will let all the forces act through me no that's not what is meant because the forces of the divine act through the lower nature right now we have to cross over from the lower to the higher supernature so when we surrender our will it means ma you inform me with your will what is your will i want to know you know there is a very beautiful bhajan by dujendra lal roy tomar karmo tumi karo ma loke bole koriyami i want to do what you want me to do not what my will is i'll do my way but i have surrendered myself i'll do whatever impulse suggestions thoughts randomly enter into me but i have surrendered myself this is called tamasic surrender but a dynamic surrender means i still choose there are at any given point of time a number of forces that are knocking at the door and i don't have to reply to all of them i reply to that force which i feel is going to lead me towards her closer to her and then after making the choice it may be the right wrong choice doesn't matter because the divine doesn't act according to a fixed format yet i surrender it to her and say that you override my choices i have made based on my highest but you are higher than the highest you know and so you override it and you take care of all the rest and when we form this kind of relation then slowly we will begin to become aware that there is a greater will which begins to operate it inspires us it takes charge of our destiny it carries us through the doors of fate and we don't even realize it it's like a super speed corridor you know what is that called <laughs> new corridor um, through which a train can move at a uh, you know bullet train speed Uh, you know vacuum corridors so that is how she takes us through that path so aspiration rejection surrender are the main processes very often people ask that what is uh, what are the methods of this yoga this the method aspiration rejection surrender it's a largely a psychological method 
But there are physical processes, sitting for concentration and meditation, concentrating in the heart. This is a physical process. One can do it that way. Not in a particular posture, but one can do it all the while and every time. One can do it while work, activity and everything. One can do it while eating, drinking, sleeping. One can do it in with every breath, calling her name and throwing everything with her name into it, into this fire. So aspiration, rejection, surrender. Rejection means choices, that what am I going to keep or draw towards me and what is it that I am going to keep away from me. It's not about things, it's about the, uh, you know, let's talk about a simple thing. We are, we are all connected with human beings in some way or the other. So in a relationship, we don't reject a person. We reject our egoistic, lustful, anger-prone engagement with the person. So it's not about the person. It's about the approach of the heart towards a human being. And then towards animals, towards plants. We don't treat the animals with disdain. We don't treat the plants with, you know, I'll chop it and eat it as, but as conscious beings. So rejection is not rejection of things. That is sannyas. It is tyaga. It's an inner rejection of our egoistic and desire-burdened engagement with life and people. And replacing it with a divine love, sweetness, which of course over a time it develops. So this is what we have to reject. Not life, not people, not creation, but our, the way we are engaging with life. And if we understand this, all the rest changes. It comes automatically. Every time we will see whether in a given situation or a given person I am engaging through the ego self and the desire or I am engaging through a greater aspiration. At least we should bring in a greater aspiration that made this relationship grow into something beautiful. May my love for this animal kind should be really, uh, you know, a greater love should express through me. Whatever creature, the plants, the trees make me more conscious, the food that I am eating. So all the time this aspiration should be there at the back of the mind. And therefore, like in food, very beautifully mother explains this about, you know, rejection in another word. She says, work without preference. And then she says, you should not take up a work for the sake of pleasure, but find pleasure in all you do. You see, now, what we have to reject is, I am taking up the work whether I am going to enjoy or not. I don't enjoy, I don't take up the work. The other is, I am given a work which I don't enjoy and yet I must be able to find the joy in it by turning it into a consecration to the Divine Mother. So this is what is the meaning of rejection. It's not something external, but an inner process where we shift the motives, we shift the impulsive impulsions and we shift the center and the goal of the action. So this is how we have to follow the yoga. Then again, uh, this was the second chapter. The rest is very simple. Chapter 3 says that when we have invoked the divine grace, don't forget that the protection is with us. And the more sincere we become, the key word is faith and sincerity. This is what we should develop. So what is that faith? That ultimately, whatever may happen, the divine will take care of it. So that's called Kalyana Shraddha. Shubhinda emphasizes a lot on this. That all will be well because the divine is behind everything. Regardless of appearances, individually and collectively. And sincerity is to become more and more one-pointed towards the our goal that has opened before us. So the sincerity takes time. The other meaning of sincerity is transparency. So it's not like we go before God and say, see how beautiful I am wearing nice clothes. See, I am a saint and I am... No. <laughs> Show to the divine everything. Look here, mother, I am prone to anger. Ma, I still feel afraid. Ma, I have this problem inside me. Ma, I have lust. Ma, I have greed. And give it to her. She wants that. She says, give it to me. What will I do with your saintliness? 
She is not creating saints by the way. She is creating superhuman beings which is much greater. Saintliness is where we live in one part which is saintly. But we leave the sinner, we cherish the sins in secret. The sinner remains buried in the subconscious. Either cherished in secret or else he is, you know, always a, there is a cap on it. Like, you know, on the yogi on the whirlpool. So she is not creating saints and yogis of the traditional kind and swamijis. She is creating a superhuman humanity, meaning thereby a being who can engage with whole creation just as human beings we engage, but in a much better, powerful, beautiful knowledge, full of knowledge, truth, wisdom, that way. Not the way we do it right now as helpless, limited beings uh, trying to you know extract our pound of flesh from everything. So it is the superhumanity of the future in everyday events of life. Not like I must wear a certain dress, put a certain tilak, everybody should call me and look at me with a halo around my uh, you know, uh, head. <laughs> let the halo be inside <laughs> and let people sense the presence. So this is the third chapter. Then fourth chapter he reveals about the uh, you know money that uh, you know money and outer life. How this outer life we have to deal with. So in with regard to outer life, we must make it beautiful. Why not? But at the same time, if whatever be the circumstances and situations, we must learn to practice equanimity. In that chapter, he also tells us about the three doors through which we can fall into the abyss, and these three doors are wealth. Power and sexual attraction. These are really doors. But it doesn't mean that suddenly I just close my eyes. No. One goes through knowing fully well. There is a whole process through which one goes and grows over all these things. One must know the direction and the goal. Then one eventually succeeds. So this is the uh, purport of the fourth one. And the fifth one is about divine work. That if you want to do the divine work, work is very important in this yoga. It's not a yoga of meditation alone. One can do away with meditation, but one cannot do away with work. Why? Because this is a yoga of dynamic change in every part of a being. And if we are not ready to engage with life through all the instrumentality, see, whenever we work, all the parts of the being come into play. The body, the breath, the heartbeat, the, the nerves, all the organs, the life force, the heart, you can't do work without putting your heart into it one way or the other and the thought. But when we meditate, all these are quiet and we are going within. So if one has to make a choice, of course there should be a balance between work and meditation. Meditation is 2-3 times a day, we can do 20 minutes a day. But work is very important. Now, Ideal is if we can work for the divine, but if it by meaning thereby that there are some works directly given by the divine. This is also the inner work, working upon our nature to change it. That also is a work, becoming conscious and offering and changing. But if nothing, whatever work we are doing, turn it into a work of the divine by offering it to the divine. Cooking, yes. Sweeping the floor, yes. Computer programs, yes. Talking, speaking, yes. Listening, yes. Every work can be done. Sarva Karmani of the Gita. And the last chapter... Chapter 6, where he suddenly gives us a grand revelation of who is the mother. How does she act in this universe? The fourfold aspects of the Divine Mother. It's a sheer beauty and marvel. And all that we can say is he reveals the different ways she works. He reveals to us how to worship the mother. So how do we worship normally? We worship the mother, you know, on Saraswati Puja. We have the Pushpanjali and go and there is, you know, uh, <laughs> we have the traditional mantras which we hardly understand or live. 
How to worship Maheshwari? By being wide, equal, impartial. That is Maheshwari. How do we worship Mahakali? By being straightforward, standing by truth, being firm and steadfast about what we truly believe in. Not by hiding things and you know, acting, uh, saying one thing, acting in another way. She doesn't like it. She loves these impulses that are frank, straightforward, direct. How do we worship Mahalakshmi? What is the way to worship her? Well, Mahalakshmi, by beauty and harmony in life, in surroundings, in thoughts, in feelings, in actions, everything. How do we worship Mahasaraswati? By perfect adaptation of the tools and the means. She doesn't like if we put a, pick a nail and um, we pick a stone and just bang it anywhere. Because we have to hang a picture. Even if it be mother's picture. That's not how she, she operates. We, we must organize. She is the perfect organizer. Organization, planning, execution to the least detail. That is the work of Mahasaraswati and she loves it. Anybody who does it becomes her favorite child. So this is how he reveals to us and then he says toward the end that must understand the divine, this world is not yet claimed by the divine. Often we think whatever is happening is the divine will. No, it's a mistake. If we take it like that, then this world would have been a much beautiful place. Either we have to draw that conclusion or that the divine has a weird will. That you know, he allows all kinds of weirdest things to happen. <laughs> From rapes and murders to you know, Narsangar and all these things. No, this world, if it was already claimed by the divine, then this would be a beautiful place. It is not. But we want the divine victory in this world. So we start with the victory within knowing that it's a battle which is going on. Let us enroll deliberately on the side of the divine. It is a Kurushetra, Dharmashetra, Kurushetra. We have to go through the battlefield of life. So when we take life like that and we don't, you know, the worst mistake a human being can do is to judge the divine. First thing first, the mind cannot judge spiritual things, let alone divine. If the mind could judge the divine, then mind has to be something superior, common sense. The mind doesn't know. So we have to constantly ask for greater wisdom and knowledge. And it comes. And three things Sri Aurobindo says we must have consciousness. If we are a block of stone, unconscious, forever unconscious, we do. Like what it means consciousness? We go to samadhi and touch it and we go to picture and bow it and go away. That's being unconscious. Consciousness means when we light up an agarbatti, we say that let this, uh, let the aspiration within my heart rise up like the pure perfumes of India. That's how the mother puts it. When we light up a candle, we do it with this idea that may the flame of aspiration within me be lit. So when we do every act, when we eat, may this food build within us elements which are needed for the yoga. When we converse with people, we step back and pray that may this conversation not lead to animosity and harm and ill will. So to live life consciously, consciousness. The second he says is plasticity. Not to be rigid and fixed that I'll do only this and the and take it that, well, divine may want us different things from us at different stages, different points of time. Yoga is a constant evolution. And if we are still stuck, you know, there are some people who say, you know, 20 years back life was so wonderful. 50 years back, then you are stuck in the past. In fact, one should say how it will be 20 years later and prepare for that. That's called yoga. Not like, you know, in our time. When a person starts saying, you know, in our time, what do we say? He has grown old. 
old people will rejoice you know when we were young are we all know what you did when you were young <laughs> so it's not to be <laughs> very you know tailor made um, sanitized story you will hear <laughs> they made the same mistakes <laughs> nothing unusual they learned from it so you know my pa- past is always better but what do young people do they get bored they say i am looking to the future so what is being youth is to look toward the future even at 95 one can be looking toward the future and at 20 one may be already old how one becomes old at 20 you know who my dad is that's being old <laughs> and when he says no i want to find my own being my own identity that's called youthfulness so this is how consciousness plasticity and the third is surrender this yoga cannot be done if you are not ready to surrender because it's a very wide and complex yoga moving along many landscapes and at the end he says know that it is only the divine mother and no amount of tapasya that can really change our life into this life divine i'll close with this passage from the mother which i have been referring to primarily throughout where he gives us the final mantra if you follow your mind it will not recognize the mother even when she is manifest before you that the mistake duryodhana did and could not recognize sri krishna whereas arjuna saw him with the psychic vision so we have to psychically open to the mother i mean we may start with any portion but eventually it is the psychic opening that counts this supramental change is a thing decreed and inevitable in the evolution of the earth consciousness the logic of evolution that will go beyond man whether there is a creator or not the creative impulse is there it cannot stop with the creature as imperfect as man so the logic of creation it's inevitable that there will be a being greater than man there are people who have hymned about it but shobindu is the first one who says there will be a divine humanity and not the nidzian humanity of the olympian type asuric type it will be a divine superhumanity of the future so he says it's decreed it doesn't depend upon us but we may have the great joy and privilege of being among the forerunners that is all that is given to us for its upward ascent is not ended and mind is not its last summit but that the change may arrive take form and endure there is needed the call from below with a will to recognize and not deny the light when it comes and there is needed the sanction of the supreme from above the power that re- mediates between the sanction and the call is the presence and power of the divine mother the mother's power and not any human endeavor and tapasya can alone rend the lid the lid between the mind and the greater consciousness the mother's power and not any human endeavor and tapasya can alone rend the lid and tear the covering and shape so what is this tear the covering the veil behind the heart through love and devotion this gets torn and the lid in the mind silence and quietude the lid vanishes so these are the two things which are required and tear the covering and shape the vessel and bring down into this world of obscurity and falsehood and death and suffering truth and light and life and life divine and the immortals ananda thank you
So, Palak, that's it. Now, can take over if any quick questions. We have five, seven minutes. Yeah. Please read this book. <laughs> that's the compendium of the absolute. Everything that we need to know about Shurabindu's yoga is there in this book. This book, there is a larger version where we have Shurabindu's letters on this book. So if one wants to know one book to read, well, this is the book. For knowing about the yoga. Uh, Adukta, there's one quick... Yeah, Prakash, go on. Yes, please. Uh, Adukta, uh, yeah. when did uh, Sri Arbindo talk of supramentalism? Okay, so, you know, Sri when he was writing about the um, synthesis in the beginning, he has not spoken about it. But later on in the revised chapters you will see, he speaks about the supramental time vision in the synthesis itself, which means between 1914 to 1920, toward the end, he, he was speaking about the supramental. But it took him 10 years to rise into the first layers of the supermind. From 1910 to 1920, he reveals that in one of his letters to Barin. So he says that, you know, he could see it like the Vedic Rishis. But he says that many of the past traditions have made the mistake of thinking that taking the over mind to be the super mind. Because it's so dazzling. It's so full of all the divine afflatus and energy. He says, I also did the same thing. But it subsequently he went beyond and that's when he spoke about the supramental. So somewhere around, we may say, you know, uh, 1919, 1920, around that, when he openly spoke. When did he realize it? We don't know. He, in 1910, he says that, you know, he could see it. But it took him 10 years to climb to the first layers of the supermind. Means he knew it in 1910. But he has spoken about it subsequently. Made it public to the world, as they say. Because he was himself striving to enter and see what it is. But he also said something very interesting. That the mother entered into the supermind through the front door. And if you read her prayers, we'll see it. She knew about the supermind. She knew about the coming of the new light even before coming here. So both were working along the same lines for the same yoga. Yeah. So there's one more question on chat. Could you please share some more insights how to light up the flame in the physical body? Okay, wonderful question. Aspiration in the physical. So, no, the one simple thing that I can suggest is that train the physical to be equal in uh, hot and cold and the different various, you know, atmosphere, atmospheric changes. Just teach the physical that look here. There is the divine presence here and you have to practice equanimity. And this practice of equanimity with the will inside to light up the flame will one day ignite it in the very physical. But practice of equanimity, learning to endure is one of the first important requirement. If we can endure the different physical uh, you know, challenges of life, uh, which is one of the things that today, you know, a life of excessive comfort has actually uh, damaged because it's very difficult to now uh, light up that flame in the physical consciousness. But if we learn to train the very, I'm talking of the physical body, physical consciousness is also active in the mind. But to just train equanimity and endurance, that is the one word, endurance with the will to light up the flame and an aspiration for the divine, it will automatically come. 
automatically it'll light up. Then there are some conditions in which we can light up much more easily when we have roga. So you know, I often use the word, uh, you know, it's a series. Bhoga leads to roga. Roga must lead lead to yoga. So when there is a physical discomfort, when there is a you know illness, for example. So what happens? There is a tremor inside the mind, the vital, and we transmit it to the body. And the body gets confused. It succumbs to the illness much more often than it should. What we should do instead? Ma, I abandon this body to you. Do what you may or will with this body. I'm telling you, there is experience of countless people, at least I know because I receive the mails and you know messages. I myself tried it several times and I am sure there are people here who have tried it. Just that time, open to her influence. By the very fact that when a body has a little pain or discomfort somewhere, we open to the grace above and the healing energies, it will impact upon the body and light up the flame. So these are two, three things which we can do. And of course, uh, you know, because if, if there is a lot of darkness and tamas, it's not conducive to lighting up the flame. So do some physical exercise and do it with the conscious uh, aspiration that may uh, this aspiration awaken in my body cells. So physical exercise has a big place in this yoga, whether it be running or anything that suits us. But to do it with the awareness, consciousness, not with the idea that I'll become strong, I'll look smart, I look, I'll be healthy, not with these. These are side um, gains. But to do the physical exercise with just this will that Ma, may this physical body become your tool, your instrument. Then doing physical work for the divine. See, that's how the mother puts it. To work for the divine is to pray with the body. So when we do physical work for the divine, then automatically those parts which are engaged in the work and through them because the body is interconnected the entire physical being begins to receive that light. For instance, when we read Shobindra and the mother's book, when we speak, which is the part which automatically receives the brain. The brain has to receive it. Then when we speak, the throat. Then what happens? The breath, the heartbeat, and through it the entire body. So any work, this one example I am saying, through this the entire physical apparatus will begin to receive and when it receives the divine touch, it will also begin to aspire. So these are the ways through which we can light up the flame of aspiration.